Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. It's that time of year. March Madness, NCAA tournament, whatever you're supposed to call it, given NCAA trademark restrictions. We'll get into that as well. But one of the people who probably has the worst bracket record in history because he's really not very good at making decisions, Dan Colarusso, the global editor of Digital for Reuters. How are you? How's that for an intro? I want you to know that I won my bracket in 1986 with Louisville, or 85, whatever, the, yeah. with Louisville. And that was the last time... I came even close to winning my bracket, but I was paying attention then. I was in college. Congratulations. And I understand the odds of a perfect bracket are twice as long as being hit by, I guess the commercial would say, a piece of space junk. But the NCAA, listen, the NCAAs are in the middle of their early rounds. It is an amazing machine for a number of reasons, including the fact that the untold story is in all of these regions. I'll be in Orlando for that one. Dayton kicks it off. They call it the first four. Buffalo, a lot of places around the country get the kick of $40, $50 million of economic impact for the game set over the weekends before it even goes to Phoenix. We'll cover it in Phoenix, clearly. But the economic impact's a great story. I didn't realize that, 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 that there was such a, a huge impact from those early games. Is it, it's, it's hotels, tourism, it's the usual stuff, right? Well, yeah. So in Florida, in Orlando, for example, the Thursday is four uh, games, eight teams, two regions, Florida Gulf Coast, University of Florida, Florida State, they come in. But Virginia, UNC Wilmington, and of course, Orlando gets the kick in a tourist infrastructure community. That's one of the reasons why they have two sets of games. It is structured on a rotating basis to maximize the economic impact and to bring a different kind of demographic in, the young kids. I know you want to talk about that as well. Well, yeah, not not so much the young kid. I mean, the young kids to you, Rick, but it's it's males in their thirties. Um, <laughs> the, the, younger you know, than me, man. You know the, the, the issue. I think you know for as much as we all want to go to Buffalo in March, you know most of the viewers that bang here for brands at least comes from advertising around the broadcast. Right? The the ad rates are are very strong. There there's, there's no charity giveaways here. Wendy's, Pizza Hut, Marriott going to make their first appearance. Uh, as NCAA sponsors this year. But is there, what I'm wondering is, yeah, we're all chasing young men. You know, that audience is impossible to get to without PlayStation and Xbox. But is there still the bang for the buck in there? Has, has this also, following the, the model of what we've seen in the NFL, we've seen in baseball, seen in basketball, has that audience become so fragmented um, or too fragmented for the TV uh, or whatever broadcast, streaming rights even, to really deliver on the money they're spending? So full disclosure, I used to be on the board of CBS Sportsline when they were a public company, and they decided that they would do a revolutionary thing, which was stream all of the games basically, quote, for free. And the discussions were, what does for free mean? Well, you're setting up advertising down the road, and that means people can watch it on their laptops or on their computer or, God forbid, on their television. And boy, was that a right decision. Welcome to the digital era, the bottom line is. And, you know, TV right since 1986, back there when you were thinking about college, a uh, 5,000% increase in the value, including the blockbuster $20 billion paid through 2032. Boy, is that interesting. 
That's a big number. That's amazing. That's a big number. And the increase is, is I mean, that's like a taxicab medallion in New York, right? I mean, that is a, that is a, a really fantastic, I mean, that's, that's huge growth. But again, you know, when does it become prohibitive? How do they figure out the full flourish of the streaming economic model in there? And, and where, I mean, they have a lot of signage available for sponsorship on small screens as well. So it's not as cut and dry as linear TV in, in something dramatic, but it is an issue that they'll have to deal with. Like at some point, that audience is going to take a lot more money to reach for whoever, who's ever carrying the games. Yeah, two quick answers. One is that it'll never outprice because they're always up ahead of the market. And second of all, they're just starting to figure out the differences between digital and over the top. And for example, up 112% the streaming from last year's national championship over the year before, 56 million Twitter and Facebook impressions. So obviously they know what the numbers are. Now, how do you monetize it? How do you show the value? Uh, That's up to the ad agencies in tandem with the companies. And we'll just list them factually. We're not uh, sponsoring anybody, but General Motors and AT&T and Coke and Capital One um, are four, and Volkswagen are the top guys. Uh, They're spending, by the way, General Motors, $93 million on the hospitality around the event. So you know they darn well better figure out, A, how to reach the masses, and B, how to get the bang for their buck, not just on television, but on digital. Or like you say, is there, is there value? You've talked about this a lot. Is there value in the event location uh, as opposed to the commoditization of the, of the broadcast? And that, that could be the trade-off at some point you know, in, in the game. But anyway, that's, I think, it's a, I think you know, I'm not a huge College Hoops fan. I watched the Final Four like all good Americans. It captures the imagination of most of the country um, for a couple of weeks, and that's more than you could say about a lot of sports events, which are a little more hit or miss uh, and, a little, and much shorter, right? World Baseball Classic underway. The first round was in South Korea, Tokyo, Miami, Guadalajara. Uh, obviously a big deal between Puerto Rico and the Dominican last night or, or this week when we're playing the games in San Diego. And when you think about it, it is a global expansion of baseball. Finally, I think people are trying to catch on to it and getting excited about it. I don't think there's ever been a lack of enthusiasm for baseball, right? I mean, Latin America, Asia, I mean, these are legitimate baseball countries. Actually, in some cases, they're two sport countries, so they don't quite have the competition. And I think we've seen it. I mean, I saw a great story about the crowds, how the crowd in Miami was clapping very politely. But in, in the Dominican game, like the, the, like when the Dominican Republic was playing, like players were literally intimidated by the crowd. I think, look, I think the World Baseball Classic is great. I think as a fan, I'd love to go and sit in the, sit in the stands with the Koreans or the Japanese or the Dominicans. Um, but my question is, how do you turn this into a real event, a financially significant event, without mainstream American interest. And mainstream American interest is only going to come when big players are participating. And the big players, some of them are there, but a lot of them have been very vocal in New York, Noah Syndergaard for one, around the the league, some others, that they're just not going to play and risk it. Yeah, well, and listen, uh, presenting sponsor for Major League Baseball Network's telecast gets their message into... 15 countries, five continents with 49 other sponsors. So the point is they want to be even more global than the NHL and the NBA, uh, way more global than the NFL. And the bottom line is to make the superstars feel like they are part of their country's quest to win this. And when you look at some of the highlights recently, we're over the hump of the big time Major League Baseball players attempting to avoid injury rather now they're attempting to make sure their team wins and i think it is good times ahead and clear sailing for the world baseball classic which is kind of cool 
Um, let's segue quickly, because it's really important and really timely, to what the NHL is facing. Uh, public funding issues for a $400 million arena in the Phoenix area. The commissioner of the NHL, plus the majority owner of the Coyotes, Andrew Barraway, said you can't succeed in Glendale, and he's giving him a deadline, and this is the end of the legislative session, so it's down to the final strokes for a new public-private partnership in Arizona for the Phoenix Coyotes. What do you think? Well, again, you're the expert on the, the financing and the arenas and, and, and how, how cities and states manage to keep, you know, keep people in. But where's Bettman coming down on this? Is he, he wants a new arena? Is the league happy with Phoenix? Um, it, does it still see it as a market, that Sunbelt demographic? Does it still see it as a viable market? Or is he just trying to put out a threat so that the team, so the city knows it's on notice? Four and a half million people with a lot of money coming from other places that are NHL cities. It is a darn good market. The problem all along has been the arena issue. The arena in Glendale was done, and the lease really was never like the other NHL deals, to be honest about it. Now, that may be right, may be wrong. Phoenix has gone from a city like Miami was when I was doing my arena and stadium thing to go from basically no teams to four major teams almost overnight with stadiums done with tourist tax money. Now they're at the point, we're all getting old, uh, now we're ready for the next set. And they're not as easy because the threat then comes into place about moving, not not just coming in, but moving. And let me tell you something, The this period right now is just like the Houston Oilers, the St. Louis Cardinals, the Baltimore Colts, the old Charlotte Hornets, cities and states that think a replacement franchise is imminent after one leaves find that going expensive, turbulent, and almost impossible. And the NHL believes in Phoenix, but they've had a number of chances, and I think they're running out of patience. You quoted someone in your show notes today as um, that, the, that the NHL needs to make the case for a state-funded arena. If you're Gary Bettman, what's your first argument? First argument is the economic impact that's brought in to make sure that they pay for the arena over time and moreover. The other argument is, in a very stated way, the lease doesn't allow the Coyotes to be competitive in this world of NHL renegotiated labor agreement. And uh, he won't say it, but he'll imply it that you better get this done because there are a lot of other cities that want a franchise. Uh, Las Vegas got a franchise when Quebec also applied, which means that there are a number of Canadian cities that are looking. And it is interesting that Gary Bettman took the Winnipeg team and moved it to Arizona in the first place. And now there may be a return if things don't happen. Interesting. Very interesting. So Canada is in the mix. If if there's an alternative, Canada is in the mix. Canada's in the mix, and it's time for Phoenix to try to figure all of this out. And so um, we've got hockey stuff. Do you want to defer that? Uh, we have Angela Ruggiero coming, uh, Olympic 2024, women's gold medal. We have her down the road. It would be neat. She's got a lot of interesting contemporary issues, so we probably ought to save that for another day. What do you think? Uh, I think we can save that, but suffice to say, the U.S. women's hockey team is now, along with the U.S. women's soccer team, in complaining about the wage gap and how little they're paid. So that'll be in, in the week that after International Women's Day. Um, it's interesting to see this income inequality shape up, especially as these women's sports become bigger drivers financially. Well, and I know it's a tease, but, you know, USA Hockey spends about $3.5 million annually to develop a schedule of 60 games for male players and nothing for female players. That's what the lawsuit's all about. Uh, Angela is a very articulate uh, USOC member. She's head of the international committees to take a look at this, and she will weigh in on this, and so will we. 
as the lawsuit goes down the road. But but now I want you to posit this and then we'll get done because our guest is really interesting. Uh, Brian Burns joined the Thunder organization in 2005. They moved from Seattle. He's been the number two guy in Oklahoma City very much. He's the guy that markets brand management, advertising, digital media, event participation. He's the SVP in charge of all that. We caught up with him at the Sloan MIT. His thought is, and we'll let him talk about it, but that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, uh, Kevin Durant, goodbye. Uh, the Thunder is doing well at the box office and otherwise uh, without him. <laughs> How can he possibly make that argument? Uh, look, look, the Thunder is competitive this year, right? Westbrook's having a, an unbelievable year and you're not paying Durant. <laughs> so I guess at some level, the business model works. The, the question is, how does the business model continue to work? You'll need another super, superstar salary in there to keep this team in the mix. Who's it going to be? Do you get the same kind of good citizen, great player, or great citizen, great player as you get with Durant? And I would, if, I would be careful what you wish for if you're a major franchise executive being thankful that your meal ticket has left town. Well, and we'll both listen to Brian Burns, but I want everybody to pay special attention to the uniqueness of he saying the Oklahoma City market has withstood a lot of, uh, of, of, of failures. Uh, we've uh, had some tragedies. We're very resilient. We see this as a way to rebound from not a tragedy, but a disappointment. And we believe in our team and regardless of Kevin Durant, he didn't say, you know, go to hell, Kevin Durant, but he did say some things like we're bigger than Kevin Durant. So I want you to keep in mind as you hear this, A, whether that applies to every city and B, ladies and gentlemen, does that mean that every superstar in every league and every sport can say, well, I may leave and it's not going to matter to me? I think not. But let's hear what Brian Burns has to say. Rick Carl, Sloan Analytics Conference. We've done this every year. The cacophony continues to grow. I've got a guy, then another guy, who actually have legitimate positions in the business world. And the reason why you know that is not just I introduce him, but the gaggle of resume carrying, I'm the guy you ought to hire, is out the, out the door. Brian Burns, known for a long time, SVP, um, marketing, ticketing, uh, sales, everything Oklahoma City Thunder. Thank you. Good to, good to be here. Yeah, it's good, great to see you. Right? Yeah, absolutely. You've always been a big fan of Oklahoma City, so we appreciate. Oklahoma City is an amazing place. The um, the birth of the Thunder um, is one of many compelling stories. The maps, the sales tax, the everything that they do, and the Thunder a very important part of that. You a very important part of the Thunder. So right back at you. Really well, appreciate thank you. that. Yeah. How does it feel to be chased into oblivion by a whole bunch of screaming people wanting a job? Well, I, it's really fascinating to be here. Um, yeah. It's not that long ago that. You know, I would see myself in these positions, going to these professional conferences uh, with a huge appetite and curiosity to learn and meet people. And to be on the receiving end of that and have people look at your badge and then want to introduce themselves and, and be so confident that this is a great opportunity to network. It's really neat to be on a little bit of the graying hair now that you're on the other side of this. But um, what a huge appetite for learning at this conference. It's really terrific. A little bit of the graying hair? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <Never mind. laughs> I, I'm getting long in the tooth. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. No, but, but experienced is the way, the way people put it around here. Give me your sense from your perspective and broadly, ticketing fan experience, uh, putting people in the seats, uh, how the industry has evolved over the last few years. And, and that's been you know, one of the, the, uh, the prevailing discussions at this particular conference is just how quickly technology is moving the ticketing business forward yeah. and the customization of content and how you really get to know the actual owner 
of the ticket and as the ticket moves through the ecosystem from the buyer to the secondary buyer to the tertiary buyer um, and, and learning from all those data points about behavioral uh, tendencies and how you can be more predictive and forecast the use of the ticket and create customized experiences for that ticket owner, we are um, light years beyond where we used to be not that long ago. You know, 8 to 10, 15 years ago, we were so consumed about how to actually sell the ticket and to create a lead source to, to identify ticket buyers. And today, um, we're more concerned about creating the customized experiences for the end user, and the ticket is really just a vehicle to understand data and content. It's a fascinating maturation of business. Is it attitudinal? Is it technological? Is it a combination of it? It used to be, as you said, it's the paper ticket and that gets you in, and that's all it is. Right, we spend more time today um, worried about who's not using their ticket, the no-show. And you can't just call that guy anymore and find out why he didn't use his ticket. The yeah. ticket's probably left his hand three times ago as the ticket is moving through the ticket forwarding system and the secondary market. Um, and so we're really more in the attitudinal behavior stage than we are in the actual transactional stage. It's a fascinating part of how this business has changed. Isn't it ironic, we used to call them scalpers and we put them in jail and now we figure out how to use the last dollar that comes from them and their successor and their successor. Well beyond that, we're all participatory in it now. Yeah. Right? Whether you're Ticketmaster, you're Seat Geek, or you're the actual team in the property, we're participating in that in that exercise. The economics behind it are, are, are significant. The data that comes behind that is significant. Um, we're selling more season tickets now to people that we're finding out through the secondary channel. We're, we're buyers on the street, so to speak. Um, it's a fascinating uh, economic model and it's a great data source model to help fuel your business. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about the thunder. Okay. Let's talk yeah. about how exciting it is to be in a town where the history of of sports has so tied into the move from one city to another of a particular franchise and owner Clay Bennett and Mayor Mick Cornette and old Mayor Ron Norick, really old Mayor Ron Norick, and the whole coalescing of sports and society around the community. You sure. proud to be there? Sure, absolutely. We're, we're actually in the advanced uh, stages now planning for the 10th anniversary. The Thunder will be in Oklahoma City 10 years next year. No. Can't be. And it's a, uh, it's a great moment for us to pause and just to think and reflect on how much we've been able to do, how much we've been able to build, uh, the sustainability of the tenth business. Tenth season next year. Next year's the tenth okay. year. I'm there for opening night. You got it. Okay. You should be, yeah, by the way. Be. Yeah. Um, but just the sustainability of the business in an unproven market. You know, ten years ago, yeah. uh, a lot of questions of whether Oklahoma City was big enough, whether it had the corporate support, whether it had the affluence, the reach to support a team at this level. And uh, you know, I think history is now showing that the market is um, very uh, sophisticated, very sports savvy. Um, it has more than enough of the affluence and the corporate base that you need to be successful. And we're really excited about where the organization is moving forward. We, we think the, the 10th anniversary is a great opportunity to pivot to the next generation uh, of Oklahoma City. And I think to have a, a, an accountability and responsibility that the Thunder, and by extension the NBA, is really helping to fuel the economic and cultural development of a city, and it's a it's a really neat thing to be a part of. And so the other piece of this too is always to look back, and economic impact studies are a blessing and a curse, because people in my mind are now discounting, the eyes glaze over, here's a number, I don't know what it means, and you fight for the last paragraph of the Wall Street Journal with somebody like Zimbalist, let's say, and others saying it, it, it doesn't exist. You breathe it, you see it every day in Oklahoma City, what does the thunder meant to the community? It's, it's, it's almost uh, a question you can't answer. It's, it's right. unlimited potential. 
Um, literally, businesses have developed all around the, the arena complex, right? So the, the ancillary businesses, the trickle-down economics of what teams and venues can do for a city. But even bigger than that, it's almost every day we are in constant consultation with the economic developers uh, in the city, the, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the, the Convention and Visitor Bureau, and they're constantly leaning on the thunder to help tell the story of why Oklahoma City is a great place to live, work, and play. Um, recently voted one of the best places for millennials. If you think about Oklahoma City uh, in the middle of the country, uh, 15 years ago if you said millennials would be flocking to Oklahoma City for job opportunities and for cultural opportunities, you'd be laughed out of the room. Um, so the NBA has had a huge influence on that because it's validated the economic development uh, in the community. And, and you don't have to look downtown anymore to see that. You can see it really spread out throughout the metro where micro communities have developed in the last six to seven to eight years. And the uh, diversity uh, of, of our business now is so much better than it's ever been. Uh, it's no longer just an oil and gas and energy town, although that's still a primary sure. factor. Uh, the medical business, the aerospace business, uh, so much of the, um, the, the development and technology and the innovation hubs that are developing in Oklahoma City. Um, I don't know how much of that to attribute to the Thunder, but the Thunder was there at a time, at a very critical time when Oklahoma City was developing and, and gaining its confidence and just validating that Oklahoma City was a great place to be. Uh, the NBA has certainly had a huge impact on that. Well, let's take it one step further. This is primarily an international audience with uh, the Reuters and otherwise. And People can't get their hands on the quantification of awareness. Some people will use media purchase or media buys or media impressions and the X value. It's almost imponderable that people who are watching this podcast or hearing it know about the Oklahoma City Thunder and they live nowhere near us. I mean, talk about that. Well, I think one of the ways that we can help kind of quantify that is, you know, Oklahoma City is the 41st largest market in the country, right? So just on paper, it's a small market, particularly in an NBA environment. Um, and yet, you look at our business performance from ticket sales to sponsorship sales, but more to your question, social media merchandise sales, which are really global metrics. We rank in the top five in the NBA in almost every category. And so when you think about somebody internationally, yeah. to consume the product, to stay connected to the product, to be engaged with the product, um, social media, Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram and the like, are ways that we can start to measure our reach. And when you think about Oklahoma City um, performing in a level at the NBA with just about every other team was in a bigger yeah. market with bigger reach and more history, and we are outperforming uh, most of those uh, those teams. I think it says a lot about the brand. I think it says a lot about the story. It says a lot about our team. It says a lot about the character of the players that have come in and, and, and played for the Oklahoma City Thunder. But I think it's also part of a special story that we've been telling about um, the value of the brand, the value of the experience, um, the professionalism and the respect that, that we bring to the game and the sport day in and day out. Um, it's, it's a global opportunity for us, and it puts Oklahoma City on the map. Big map, international map. Now let's talk about the, the other piece of that, which is the piece that I think a lot of the national, international media wants to talk about. Thunder life after Kevin Durant, tell yeah, me. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's been a fascinating experience to go through um, you know, the, the transformation of, of losing a player of Kevin's stature and had been there for eight years and yeah. had been the identity of the franchise. And I think the question that always existed in, in, in our business was what happens when Kevin leaves? And fortunately for us, we always had an attitude that one day Kevin won't play for this organization. 
whether it was through free agency or he was going to retire someday, our attitude always had the long view. How do you build a sustainable business that would survive for generations? And you had to do it built on principles and values and uh, you know, strong value propositions. So we're six to eight months removed now from Kevin leaving and we have the most of a season now behind us and we're thrilled at the business performance. Our ticket sales still rank in the top four in the NBA. Our locally generated sponsorship revenue is fourth best in the NBA. Think about the scale of all the other markets that we're outperforming. Um, our renewal rate will be again over 90, 92% uh, on tickets. Um, it is a great report card on the health of the business and the health of the market that this, uh, this thing called the NBA and the Oklahoma City Thunder has sustainability, it has a strong foundation, it has a great connection to the fan base, and it, it will have survived a transformational player leaving the organization. And I think that speaks volumes to the fact that this is going to work. And as we look to market to the next generation, we have a strong foundation to call upon. I think it's probably a positive message that can be delivered for collective bargaining, NBA free agency, the whole idea of what it's like to attract a superstar and not have that team so dependent on it that everything crumbles when he leaves. Well, I think the paradigm has changed a bit. I don't think you have to be in a big market now to be an athlete and, yeah, to, right. uh, and to enjoy the riches of, of the sport. Uh, Adam Silver made a comment here yesterday that um, Kevin Durant had more sponsorship opportunities last year in Oklahoma City than the entire roster of the Golden State Warriors did last year. Yeah. And so that speaks to the globalization yeah. of the business right. and the globalization for the player. And I think that's making the markets more, um, more level. And I think that's going to give us an opportunity to continue to be successful um, on and off the court. So has Oklahoma City, independent of your business metrics, and I know that's the answer, have they gotten over the emotional feeling that one of our own left us? He wasn't one of our own, but he left us. Yeah, it's easier to answer that today because we've just played the Golden State Warriors in the last yeah, couple of weeks. Right. Um, you know, I, it was certainly a crushing blow to the emotion of the fan, the psyche of the fan. It hearkened up kind of the old um, paradigms of Oklahoma City can't retain its talent. Um, and if you had an opportunity, you had to go seek it elsewhere. Uh, that, that's permeated our, our community and culture for generations. So there were, there were aspects of that that, that came up uh, post-Kevin. Um, but as the season wore on, certainly as Russell Westbrook made his commitment to Oklahoma City, as the, as the team has continued to mature and develop, uh, that has dissipated. Uh, we played the Warriors a few weeks ago. Everybody had their chance to tell Kevin what they thought of his, of his departure. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Yeah, we, so I, I, wish, I, think I wish we had that. Uh, I, I think we've crossed the hurdle. Um, and quite frankly, the best thing that came out of that game, um, and, and of course there was a lot of venom directed at Kevin, um, the best thing that came out of that game was our fans telling us afterwards, we are even further committed to the Thunder. We love our guys, we love our team, we love the, the game experience, we love what it means to our community. And the hurt, I think, has turned into a real positive. And we're gonna build on that. This is more sociological and anthropological and psychological, uh, three ogicals that you can't even begin to handle. But I will tell you that one of the interesting perspectives I've had about Oklahoma City, and let's not even put them on the same plane, but the whole success of maps and the thunder, etc., has given the community the ability to withstand tragedies, whether it was the bombing, which is uh, horrific, or whether it's somebody that they put their emotional feeling into leaving. Sure. What, what, what's your thought about that? Well, just I, I, I think about just two weeks ago, the baseball team, uh, the Oklahoma City Dodgers, celebrated the 20th anniversary of the opening of the baseball stadium. Yeah. And that was really the first transformational thing to the MAPS pro program. Right, I know. So when MAPS was initiated, um, there were nine projects. The arena was the ninth and the final one. It was the most controversial, uh, particularly at the time. When the baseball stadium opened, I think it, it showed the community that something was possible. 
and that progress was possible and that Oklahoma City can be proud of its investment and it can be a cosmopolitan city. And so I think that started a change in the psychology and, and the attitude of, of, the, of the consumer and the, and the citizen to say that Oklahoma City was as good as any other market. And yeah. you can make investments and you can feel good and you can be proud. And you know, it took that investment, it took a civic investment, it took a, a baseball stadium and it took other things to, I think, change the focus and change the attitude. And of course the, the arena opened you know, several years later and then the thunder arrived. And so we're at a different point in time. But there have been monumental uh, events and experiences that have happened uh, over the last 20 years that have built the modern-day Oklahoma City beyond physical infrastructure. It's as much an emotional infrastructure that's a positive thing today. Yeah, and I appreciate your perspective on that, and I find it uh, a little emotionally debilitating for me since I slowed down in the tennis court that we're celebrating the the 20th anniversary of a building that I kind of helped uh, <laughs> uh, put together in some context. And speaking of old, here's my final question for you. Um, now that you are experienced with less hair and the hair you have being gray, what advice do you have for people around here who are getting in the business, wanting investors uh, around the business, the evolution of the sports business? You know, give give us your wisdom. Well, I, I'm just I'm so impressed by what I've seen so far at this conference today because the the the, the, uh, the confidence uh, from the students, the confidence to ask questions, the confidence to seek people out, the confidence to have an idea and to and to share it um, is really it's remarkable. And and I think that maybe has a lot to do with the culture that's created here. At at, at Sloan, um, but you know, just the attitude that you have to work hard and you have to roll up your sleeve, and you can have the best idea, and you can have the next widget, and you can have the next a algorithm figured out, but you still have to develop a relationship with people. You still have to sell yourself. You still have to have a personal brand. You still have to have an energy and a confidence, um, and you still have to go and you know be aggressive and, and project confidence, and you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and, and, and do it the hard way. And, and I find those characteristics, um, you know, to be as uh, as relevant today as it was 25 years ago. Um, you know, 25 years ago it was the willingness to get on a phone and, and cold call. Yeah, and today right. it might be the willingness to figure out the next, you know, the next algorithm. But um, the core characteristics behind that are the same. And and I just think the hustle and the willingness to just, you know, get out get out of your comfort zone, get out of your bubble, and introduce yourself to somebody and have the, uh, you know, the confidence to sell an idea uh, is still at the heart of what drives success. How far are the Thunder going in the playoffs? I don't know, but I got to tell you, our team is uh, is, a, is a gritty team, and it's a team that has embodied uh, kind of the, the attitude of the, of the players, particularly led by Russell, that anything's possible. And every night they go out, and you know, it may sound like a cliche, but they are on the they're they're given 100 percent every night, and it's what drives our fan connection. It, it's the character of the team. Uh, they compete with such a force and a tenacity um, that it's it's engaging. And you know this team has has um, uh, has no limit to what they can accomplish. And that's part of what's fun about being a Thunder fan. Ladies and gentlemen, did you hear that answer? The current mayor, Mick Cornett, has declared his intention not to run for next mayor of Oklahoma City. That man does it next after that answer. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed your time. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hopte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.